You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. Good to be with you here again online. I'm so excited that in about three weeks from now, Lord willing, you're going to be in this room here with me and we can be together. And so we'll be unveiling uh, details about that here in the coming days. But in the meantime, we're going to continue online here in our our uh, progression through the book of Romans, our study in the book of Romans together. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter one. Uh, we are uh, continuing here in this study and, and what uh, Paul has done, man, so beautifully in the first 17 verses of this, uh, of this uh, letter that he's written is he's just essentially put up and held up before us this diamond this diamond called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, how God has sent his son into the world to bring us what we could not purchase for ourselves, which is the righteousness of God, the right standing that we need to have before God in order to be saved and in order to experience the joy that he has created and redeemed us for. And so uh, what Paul has done in lifting up that diamond has been so beautiful when he's talked about how unashamed he is of that diamond. And what we're going to begin seeing, as we've said over the next 16 chapters, is Paul, chapter by chapter, is just going to take that diamond and he's just going to turn it one facet at a time and just show us a different side of that of that gospel and we, that we can see, that we can really understand why it is that makes the good news of Jesus Christ so good. And that's where we're heading. But I need to warn you because starting today and into the next really four weeks after this, we're gonna see some of the darker facets of that diamond. Some of the harder to get our minds around facets of that diamond. And I, I, I want to warn you there because the truth is what Paul is going to do here is he's going he's to remind us, he's going to show us that the very reason why Jesus came to bring us the righteousness of God is because none of us have it. None of us have that righteousness. And so we're going to spend the next two and a half chapters here as we work through this looking, uh, essentially it's, it's like we're going to be in a courtroom it's, Paul is going to put every human being that has ever lived on trial. And what he's going to do over the next two and a half chapters is bring in witness after witness after witness who is going to bear testimony and demonstrate evidence for why it is we don't have the righteousness that we need in order to stand in the presence of holy God. And so as he calls this court into session, if you were to really kind of put one word label over the next, over the first three chapters of Romans, really up to chapter three, verse 20, you could put the word condemnation. Paul is going to show the condemnation of every man and woman who's ever lived on planet earth before we get to our justification, the good news that's in Jesus Christ. And what he's going to do first is he's going to start with the Gentile in chapter one, the irreligious person. He's going to walk through why it is those of us who are not of the covenant nation of Israel, the covenant people of Israel, all the Gentiles of the world, why it is we have rejected God in both the witness of creation and our own consciences within us. We have rejected God and we stand culpable and condemned before a holy God. And if you were a Jewish reader reading this, you're reading chapter one going, come on, Paul, get them. It's what I've been talking about. We've been talking about these Gentile dogs and how unclean they are and how they need the righteousness of God. They don't, they're not like us. You, you, they stand condemned. And, and yet 
Paul is going to gently then turn into chapter 2 and go, no, no, I'm not just talking about the Gentile. I'm talking about the Jew as well. I'm talking about the religious person as well, because in some ways you're even worse off because you've had this knowledge about God written down for you in pen and ink, not just in the sunsets and the sunrises. You've had the knowledge of God in pen and ink and you still rejected him. And so you too stand condemned and culpable before God. And so by the time we get to the middle of chapter three, three verse 20, man, we are just going to be pleading for help. We are going to see that every human being who's ever lived on earth is condemned before a holy God. And we can do nothing but fall on our face and plead for his mercy and his grace to intervene and provide us this righteousness that we do not have. And that's what we're going to see as we make our trek through here. Now, one of the inevitable questions that often comes up when it comes to studying this text is, well, what about those who've never heard of the gospel? What about the man and woman who, who has never heard about this God of the Bible? Like think about the most sincere Buddhist you know, who's just never heard about the God of the Bible, but they're sincerely pursuing what they believe to be God or the most sincere Hindu, or the most sincere Muslim, or the, the most sincere atheist that you know. Someone say even like my own grandparents who, who didn't believe in God, but they, they lived charitably, they lived upright and moral lives, they were kind to their neighbor. Surely God is not going to hold those people accountable for a knowledge that they did not know, they did not have. Surely God is going to judge them on a curve, Right? And what Paul's going to show us in chapter one is there is no such thing as a person who has never heard about God, nor is there such thing as a morally neutral person. What Paul is going to show us, starting here, the first witness he's going to call into the courtroom is creation itself that will testify against us, that even with the evidence of the works of God in front of us. We may have not had the very word of God to point us to who he is, but certainly we've had the works of God. And even with those works in front of us, we still have rejected him. We have rejected that knowledge of him and therefore we stand condemned. Chapter one is really about general revelation and man's just condemnation for their rejection of what God has made generally known to man. And Paul's gonna show us here that when man rejects the very evidence of God that is available to us, and in exchange, we decide to put our own alternative forms of worship in that place, those are not innocent, naive acts that God can just sit, sit on standby and watch idly by. No, those are, those are acts of treason against the most high God, and God must hold man accountable for that. Paul is going to challenge the assumption that somehow the hypothetical version of some, um, some, uh, some person down in the jungles of Peru, the heathen in the jungles of Peru who's never heard about God, is somehow any different than the heathen in the gems of Plano. Like there's, there's no difference here. All have fallen short of the righteousness of God. All will stand condemned. You know, there was a a man who proved this to be true um, by the name of Paul Gauguin. I don't know how many have, have heard of him. Paul Gauguin was a French painter in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was so fed up living in France, 
He was so tired of all the the constrictive laws that were created by man that he felt led to the injustices and the culture around them. If only he could just divest himself of all the laws and all the structures that man has made. And if he could just leave society, leave the the bourgeoisie of, of, of France, and he could just move and find some place on earth where there was no formal structure, where people were free of societal burdens, if only we could just move and find what, what he called this kind of instinctive response to life, that what you would find there is true nobility. And so you know what he did? He moved to Tahiti. And you know what he found when he got to Tahiti? He found violence and perversion and horrific acts of sin, even without the structures that he had experienced in France. He was so despaired over what he saw in what he thought would be this noble land that he he wanted to go back home and end his life and commit suicide. What he found is there is, and he wrote even in his journals, there is no such thing as a noble savage. All humans, everywhere you can go on earth, have the same brokenness within them. And that's exactly what Paul's going to show us here in this passage together. Now, that being said, Here's what I want you to understand, church. Um, if, if you have ever wondered what is, what is it that's wrong with our world around us? What is it that's broken with our world around us? You need to know the answer to that question does not begin with politics or religion necessarily. It does not begin with education. It does not begin with race. It's not capitalism. It's not even morality. If you wanna know where our problems begin in the brokenness of this world, it always starts with our belief or disbelief in God. That's where it starts. And that's what Paul's going to show us. I want to show you in the rest of chapter one, a mini theology of the doctrine of condemnation that will carry us through chapter three. And there are four specific things in chapter one that every human apart from the grace of God will do that will hold us responsible under the wrath of God and find us culpable under his judgment. Four things. We're going to look at three of them this week, and we'll look at the fourth thing next week. But here's where we're going to go. And y'all, this is going to be about as fun as a root canal, these next couple chapters. This is a theological root canal right here. Very few people enjoy walking through this text, and sadly, very few churches are committed to teaching through this text. But we got to understand, if we don't lay the foundation of what is true in these passages, we will never get to turn to that most beautiful of facets in the good news of Jesus Christ that's coming in chapter 3. So hang with me as we walk through this. If you want to put a word down to verses 18 through 20, put one word next to those verses, put the word rejection. This is the first thing that we're going to see in man's response here is rejection. Starting in verse 18, read with me here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The first thing that I want you to do right here is I want you to circle the words, the phrase, wrath of God is revealed in verse 18. And then I want you to circle the words righteousness of God is revealed in verse 17, because Paul is juxtaposing and at the same time connecting these two ideas right here. 
only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus is coming to earth, living a perfectly obedient life to God that culminated in his death on a cross as a substitute for us, thereby absorbing the just wrath of God upon himself and in exchange through faith in him, giving us his righteousness and then conquering the grave through his resurrection. Only through that good news of Jesus Christ is God's righteousness manifested to us. There is no righteousness of God apart from the work of Jesus Christ. That's where we find it. That's where we obtain it. However, whenever you see a people and a culture who reject God in what they do know and choose to suppress the truth about God, that has been revealed to them, it is evidencing two things. Number one, just how ungodly and unrighteous a people really are. And secondly, the fact that the wrath of God is now at work on those people and in that culture. And that's what we're going to see here. Whenever we talk about the wrath of God, that's not a very popular term in our culture. We don't like the term wrath. One of the things you can do right here is substitute it with the word justice. It's the same concept. Now, we all love the word justice right now. We've talked about this. When you go out in the streets in those protests, that's what you see being screamed from the streets is justice. Like we, we want justice to be upheld wherever injustice has occurred. And we demand that a good and just judge will uphold the law of justice against that injustice. Like, and we demand that. We want that justice to play out. We want that equitable standard of law to be applied to all people, not just some. The same is true with God. It's exactly what we see with God. His wrath, his justice, a lot of us try to equate his wrath. We try to stem it from some angry ogre in the sky. Don't attach it to just an emotional anger. His wrath comes from his holiness. His perfect holiness is what upholds justice when injustice is occurring. And whenever mankind rejects God, which by the way is the holiest of all laws out there, then you can expect to see the wrath or the justice of God upon those people who have rejected him. Now we'll see how this wrath ultimately plays out when we get to verse 24 and following. We'll look at that next week. But the question that we're dealing with right here, the one we asked earlier is how can you say a people are suppressing a truth about God that they never had? What truth about this God is it that you're saying these people have rejected? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 19. Now what Paul's gonna start doing, by the way, in verse 19 here is is he's gonna evidence the knowledge of God that all men have. Biblically speaking, there are two revelations of the knowledge of God that all people can have. There is a general revelation, and then there is a special revelation. General revelation is the works of God, just looking around at the creation around us. Special revelation is gonna be the very word of God that has been given specialized about who God is. It is general revelation that puts us on the trail of God. Special revelation actually provides us the conclusions about God. Psalm 19, which we read earlier this summer, speaks to both of these. Starts out in verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's the works of God. That's general revelation. But by the time you get to verse seven, the psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect. Meaning the actual pen and ink, the, the words given to us by 
God. And in Romans, what Paul's going to do is he's going to deal with general revelation in chapter one, and he's going to deal with special revelation in chapter two. And he's going to show us how we have rejected both willfully and therefore rightfully deserving of the condemnation of God. Now, in verse 19, we're going to see two forms of or two common graces of the works of God in general revelation. A knowledge of God that is found in nature and a knowledge of God that is found in conscience. Now look at this in verse 19. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now let's stop right there for a moment. What can be known about God is plain because God has shown us. And I I think the NAS translation, the New American Standard gets it better here. It says that which is known about God is evident within us for God has made it evident to us. There is an internal conscience within us that gets pricked when we see what has been externally manifested to us around us that is meant to draw conclusions rightly. Paul says there's a knowledge about God in the nature around us. There's a knowledge about God that has plainly been revealed to us. You go, how? How has God revealed himself? Well, again, glad you asked. Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, oh, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, they've been clearly perceived in the things that have been made so that mankind is without excuse. So Paul says, let's just assume for a moment that because there is a creation around us, that there is a creator. And if we were to look at the creation around us, what is it that we can draw from creation that gives us some hint at the attributes of that creator? Well, think about it for just a moment. There's lots that we can draw. Just a few of these right offhand. I mean, you can look at the creation around us and you can learn about the wisdom of this creator. Like the fact that if we, if planet Earth were to be 5% closer to the sun or 5% further from the sun, human life would be completely unsustainable. Like there is a wisdom about where we're found to sustain life. You have to be in just the right location, in just the right galaxy, galaxy in just the right solar system. If you're anywhere else, there's no human life that can be sustained. Donald Page of Princeton's Institute for Advanced Science has calculated that the odds of the universe developing in this spot by blind random chance uh, in a form that is suitable for human life, the odds are about one in 10 trillion to the 124th power. That's 10 trillion and add 124 more zeros at the end. And you got one shot at this thing landing right here accidentally or by chance. That is the same probability of taking a Rolex watch and all the individual pieces separate from one another, dropping them in a can, shaking it up for an hour and then popping out, popping out this this, uh, perfectly put together Rolex watch. Like that's improbable right there. Fred Hoyle, by the way, an astronomer and stellar nuclear scientist, a title that I will never carry myself. Stellar, I hope to be a stellar Bible teacher, but a stellar interstellar nuclear scientist 
says that when given the scientific data of the universe, it is actually more irrational to consider all of this happening by chance than it is to believe there is a master intellect behind it. So there is a wisdom at work just by looking at where we are in the galaxy right now. Think, let alone think about the wisdom that's found in our human bodies. We've talked about this before. The fact that your nose, your nostrils point downward. Had they been pointing upward, you would have drowned in the shower the first time that you took a shower. Like there is a design at work that the water would roll down our face. Think about our eyebrows for a moment. Our eyebrows are the only hair on our entire body that grows upwards instead of downwards. Like think about that for just a moment, that there is a design even in your eyebrows so that when you are sweating, that sweat goes around your eyes rather than in your eyes. Like that is a unique wisdom at play here when all other hair on our body goes downward and yet this one piece of hair goes uphill. I mean, you've got to take a sperm and an egg at this point and code in a gene that gets your hair to do that at that exact location. Like who cares enough about man to ensure that salt stays out of his eyes? Who cares about man enough to ensure that hair is going to grow upward rather than downward? There is a wisdom. Now, some of us have some extra coding called a unibrow that's in there, a little extra special love in that wisdom. But there is a wisdom at play, nonetheless, that we can learn about this creator just from the way our bodies are designed. And we can talk about the benevolence of God, the benevolence of a creator, and the fact that and we have rain that comes down from the sky, waters the ground, and therefore food grows up out of the ground. There is a benevolence that is given to us in the creation. That's why Paul said to the Lyconians at Lystra in Acts chapter 14, when he said, he has not left you without witness of who he is and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with gladness. There is a testimony in the design of this earth that speaks to a benevolent creator. There's, we can learn about the personability of this creator, the fact that we have been created to relate and feel and cry and hurt and laugh and enjoy fellowship with one another. All of that speaks of a relational image that is reflecting the one that has made us. We can look at the morality that's in us. There seems to be some internal compass that, that brings about some conscience to bear of right and wrong. Now, some greater for others, some less for others, but nonetheless, you can go into those those savage lands, and there's a reason why headhunters don't want their own heads hunted. There's an internal compass that is built in of some morality that's reflecting the image of the, that one who's created us. We can look at the power of this creator. If you've ever sat out in front, as I have, over the Pacific Ocean and just took in the enormity of the Pacific Ocean and the sea life in it. If you've ever sat over Yosemite as I have and looked upon El Capitan and, and, and Half Dome and just the creativity and the enormity that's there. If you've ever sat under Everest or you've sat in other remote parts of the world and you've just seen, if you sat under the stars and looked up at the, in the Milky Way above us and you've gone, man, the power of the one who must have made this. We could go on and on, just the fact of there must be divinity because of all that has been made, the strength and the power and the beauty. Like we're not, we can't do any of these things. None of us can make this. I do a game with my kids whenever we go hiking out on trails of man-made, God-made. Is this bench over here? Is that man-made or God-made? That's man-made. Well, what about that tree right there? Is that man-made or God-made? No, that's God-made. Only God could grow that thing. So there's just this 
this telltale story in the creation about the attributes of God that we can glean from. Now, again, all of those observations, they are not a full and final knowledge about this God, but it is a knowledge about God, a knowledge that can help us begin to connect the dots to a intelligent designer who put this world into motion and therefore must have a purpose behind it that we can seek after. All this, by the way, theological, you want to put it in some nerdy terms. We're looking at a term called the cosmological argument. Cosmos means universe. Uh, Logos means word. It's the universe speaks. You can look at the creation around us and it's telling you a story. There's a, a teleological argument. Telos is the idea of purpose. Logos again speaks that there's, there's this intentional design that is built into the fabric of our world that is pointing to an intentional designer. An ontological argument, the idea of, of a, a supreme being that none of this, that, that isn't dependent upon any of this like we are, but is independent of it all. And all of this, Paul is so convinced of being able to see God through the creation, that that phrase, by the way, in verse 20, that says, in the things that have been made, that phrase in the Greek is only one word. It's the word poema, P-O-I-E-M-A. We get the term poem or masterpiece, something that is put together with such structure and organization that brings with it a deep knowledge of the one who designed it. Used only, used only in one other place, by the way, in scripture, in the book of Ephesians, when Paul is writing about us, the church, that we are his workmanship. We are his poema, his poem, his masterpiece. We are the sonnet that speaks of God's work in creation and in redemption. And so at the end of verse 20, there's three things that you need to know about the so-called person who has never heard about God. Number one, that person doesn't exist. Number two, the reason is because the evidence of God is all around us and what, by what has been clearly seen through what has been clearly made. And thirdly, man knows it. Man knows this is true. And so man is without excuse. So the real question that comes up here then is what does man do with this evidence? If we can truly see that there is a God through the creation around us, what do we do with that evidence? Will we acknowledge the presence of this God? Will we fall on our face in all of his divine attributes? And will we plead for further revelation to come that we might know who this God is? Or will we go a different route? Look at verse 18 one more time. Notice what man does with this truth. Paul says in verse 18, he suppresses it. That word suppress, we've talked about this before, is a very strong word in the Greek. It's a word that means to hold down or to forcibly put an end to, which by the way, in light of the insurmountable evidence that we've just seen, that's not an easy task to do, to try to put an end to the evidence of the existence of God. Now, we, we said this before, the word means to hold down. It's being in a swimming pool. If you've ever taken a, a beach ball, an inflatable beach ball, and you've tried to push it under the water, it's not easy to do that, is it? It's constantly wanting to pop back up. You push it out, whoop, just pops up there. Push down there, whoop, pops up the other way right there. But what you're trying to do is force something to go down that is never meant to go down against what it is naturally wants to do. And so if there's one word again that sums up what man has chosen to do with this plain knowledge 
from the creation that there is a God who exists, it's the word rejection. Verses 18 through 20, rejection. Man refuses to believe what has been made evident to him, so he is guilty before God. But I want you to notice that it never stops there. We love to believe that one can just somehow remain neutrally agnostic or atheistic, but the truth is we can't. We were designed to worship something. And if we will not respond in submission and exaltation to the authority of God and worship him, then the next place man will go is they'll automatically begin looking inside themselves for alternative answers. And so if you wanna put a word next to verses 21 and 22, you can put the word reasoning. This is the logical process. We move from rejection of God into reasoning away from God. And you see this process. Look at this in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Y'all, that should be the natural response when we look upon creation is to honor the creator, that of humble thanksgiving and worship of whoever the supreme being is that has done all this for us. I remember hearing the story of Helen Keller when she was being taught Braille by Ann Sullivan. And as she came across the word God in Braille, she paused. And she simply said, I always knew him. I always knew he was in the darkness there with me. I just never knew his name. And now I know his name and I will worship him by that name. Like that is what the normal response to the works of God around us should be. But instead, here's what man does. Keep going in verse 21. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is what happens to man when in the face of all that is obvious about God, he chooses to set God aside and turn inward to look to himself for his own wisdom and his own alternatives to what he or she thinks is better version than God. And it's at this point that the light of the wisdom of the knowledge of God in creation all around us that was meant to lead us to a greater light of knowledge, that light goes out and instead gets substituted for the darkness of one's own perceived superior wisdom and intellect. You see that in verse 22. Look at 22 with me. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. In other words, Here's all this evidence that is screaming, there must be an intelligent designer of the world. And yet they go, nah, it's probably gotta be something else. Probably gotta be a big bang that kind of created this all and expanded the universe and made everything that we see from there. You know, I'll never forget, I think I've shared this story with some, but uh, when our firstborn daughter was born, man, we were so excited. And we went in for that, that first kind of post birth visit when we bring her back to the doctor's office and they check her out, make sure she's okay. And I remember sitting in there with the doctor who delivered our baby and he had delivered, I mean, probably tens of thousands of babies. He was the senior doctor uh, in, the, uh, in that department. And so we go in there and we're holding her. I mean, look at her, isn't she beautiful? And he's like, oh, she's so beautiful, isn't it? And he goes, isn't it amazing what evolution can do? 
And I remember sitting there with my wife and going, we just kind of laughed out loud and said, doctor, I mean, you mean to tell me after all these births that you have seen, all these beautiful babies that you have delivered and all that you know about how life is sustained in the womb and have delivered these out, like you don't see the handiwork of a master intellect, a, a, a supreme being who created this for a design purpose and brought this in for us to enjoy. Like you don't, and I just remember him looking at me going, no, that's where we disagree. That's where we differ. I see it differently than you do. And Paul says in this text right here, they think they're brilliant because they come up with all these other alternative theories, but in reality, they're fools because they just willfully traded the greater reality for a lesser mirage that is no reality at all. When verse 23, when this happens, the inevitable third check in this process now gets cashed in. As we move from the rejection of God to reasoning away from God and now to the replacement of God. If you wanna put one word next to verse 23, this will be our third and final one today. It's that of replacement. Look at this in verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Man is supposedly too smart to rightfully acknowledge and worship God. So instead he forms his own deities out of the very creation that God made and he worships them. And whether it's the pantheon of Greek gods whether it's the golden calf of Israel, whether it's the, an emerald that's made into the image of Buddha, whether it's a piece of toast that seems to have a burnt image of Mary on it, whatever it may be, we worship these things. Or whether you move westward here in, in our culture, and it's not necessarily carved statues, but it's the images of money and clothing and politicians and celebrities and fame. And that all of this we put on a platform and we surrender our hopes and our allegiances to, and that's the foolish irony that Paul is getting at here, is that here you have the glory of an infinite personal God who's been revealed to you through his works so that you can behold him and enjoy him forever. And yet we choose to take that glory down to the local pawn shop and trade it in for a finite, perishable replica of us that we might worship. May we give away something of external, of eternal worth in exchange for an image that has no value at all. Something mortal, something corruptible. Leon Morris wrote of this, when people could and should have worshiped a God not subject to decay of any sort, they chose to worship instead, not even man, but the image of a man who wastes away. Verse 23, what it is speaking to ultimately church, that is idolatry. The worship and veneration of anything other than God. And at the end of the day, the very heart of what is fueling idolatry isn't just the rejection of God, it's actually the love of self. Philippians 3, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi and said, their end is destruction because their God is their bellies. And their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
Their God is their bellies. It's just our appetites. It's the, the cravings of the flesh that we want, that we tend to exalt rather than the God who made us. At the end of the day, the reason why it is easy for us to suppress what we know to be true in our consciences about God is because we just really love ourselves more than we love the idea of God. And notice there is always a descending path in idolatry. What starts with the worship of man moves to birds, then to animals, then to reptiles. We will take the lowest forms on earth and we will venerate them higher than God. Do you see why it is, according to Paul here, that men and women are without excuse and guilty before God? We're not talking about some sort of neutral morality here or some other viable form of worship here. We are talking about high treason in the form of willful suppression, rejection, and a coup d'etat of humanity towards God that leaves us all without excuse. So church, do you see why this text is here right now? Can I just, can I tell you what this text is meant to do? It is screaming to you and I, that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth and created you so that you could know him, so that he can know you, so that there can be relationship. Think about that. The God of the universe, the God of all creation has created us because he wants a relationship with us, not for us to run to lesser things, but to enjoy him. That means every sunrise, every sunset, every mountain peak, every ocean tide is heralding the glory of the knowledge of the infinite God that he and he alone is available to us. It's what it's meant to do. Now, this general knowledge about God that we've covered here in these verses, it is not enough to save you, but it is enough to condemn. It's not enough to save. You need Jesus Christ. You can't get saved just looking at the mountains. You need the special revelation of Jesus Christ. And y'all, that knowledge is coming. Chapter three, verse 21 is on its way. Jesus is coming. He's come to absorb God's justice on our sin. He's come to cleanse our guilt and our shame and our sin. He's come to reconcile us back to that God, adopt us as sons and daughters in relationship with him. God sent his son because he loves us. That special revelation is coming, but one cannot expect to receive this greater light to come if you are willfully rejecting the very light, the little light that you've already been given. We must respond to the light that we do have. And even, even if we never hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if we never hear of who this God of the Bible actually is, we still stand culpable and condemned of high treason before the holiness of God for rejecting the very information about God that we did know. And so one of the telltale signs that a culture has done this, that the wrath of God is fully at play, is in the last and fourth step that we'll see next week when we see the manifestation of the wrath of God on a culture. But in the meantime, church, Use this as an opportunity to respond in worship and in awe. Let us fall on our face in humility and cry out to the God who has been made available to us, knowing that he who testifies through his creation 
that he exists, will at the same time also testify through his son, Jesus Christ, just how far he's come to reach us and redeem us. Let's pray to that God. Father, we just confess we need you. We confess that we need help, that we can, we can look to the earth and the creation around us. And yet, God, because of our sin, because of our ungodliness, we reject the very knowledge that's been given to us. God, we recognize our guilt. We recognize that apart from you, we stand condemned. But oh God, how we need Jesus Christ. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the redemption that you've come to bring us. May you, in a posture of humility, break us to see our need for you, that there is a righteousness we do not have that can only be found in Jesus Christ, that by faith we might transfer our trust to him and to him alone. God, for your glory, certainly for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.